Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world. Who knows how sweep it is? I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. And we only need two games to put you in the mud. Oh, man, that was uh, quick work from <laughs> these four baseball teams. We talked about the nature of a three-game set and how, hey, at least you have at least two games, right? You know, it's not just one. You were one wild card game, no two, but it felt almost as fast as one game. It could have been an email. It didn't need to be a meeting. <laughs> this it round could have been an email. Oh. Yes, it could have been an email. It could have been a one-game wild card round, and I'm not sure a whole lot would have been different. There were some entertaining games, particularly in Minnesota and Milwaukee, but we will get to all of it. This will be a quicker episode of Baseball Barbacast because we are going to pod again tomorrow to preview the Division Series round. Remember, you can email us, baseballbarbacast at gmail.com, B-A-R-B-Cast. Rate, review the show, subscribe to it. Wherever you get your podcasts, it helps the show grow. Let's begin at the Trop, America's Ballpark. Not that many people showed up again, and no. the it, neither did the Rays offense. No, no. And was there a correlation there? I don't know. I would say that really what was important is that Nathan Ivaldi reverted back to postseason mode. Any evidence that he showed us over the last few months that he was in any sort of diminished form went down the toilet. And the Rays' offense were the victims of a nasty Nate performance. But also, uh, Zach Leflin was just okay, and the Rangers' offense kind of woke up in a way that we were expecting to them to at some point. And uh, the Rangers just kind of roll here. This was a, a really tough showing from a 99-win team. I imagine there are uh, some Rays fans who had some, some pretty high hopes for, for this October run, and it did not come to fruition whatsoever. This was a non-competitive series for them. And that is immensely disappointing. Kevin Cash just looked stunningly defeated from essentially first pitch. And uh, yeah, it was it was a rough watch. I would say this was probably the one, co compared to the other three series, this was the one, especially since it was at home. I know they weren't the only home team that lost. We'll talk about the Brewers. But uh, no matter the size of the crowd, any of the fans they showed just made me sad. Last year, they went to Cleveland and put up a similarly stinky performance, but because it was on the road, you understood it more a little bit, at least in theory. To do this at home, where they had been so dominant all season, was very disjointing. It felt like we were watching a completely different ball club than the one we had seen all season. And then, like, dude, they start, remember, they started 13-0. They were 13-0, and and they finish 0-2, and, and that's all that matters. Now, before we look ahead for Texas facing your beloved Baltimore Orioles, Jake, uh, I mean, are we taking anything big picture away from the Tampa Bay Rays or or no? 
Big picture away from the Tampa Bay Rays. That's a good question. I th- So it, it was a very momentous year. A lot of stuff happened. The Wander Franco thing is like we're not going to rehash it all, but when your franchise shortstop, who you gave more money to than any player in franchise history, who's like 23 years old, 22 years old, and the face of the whole operation gets wrapped up in allegedly, you know, inappropriate behavior with underage girls, that kind of throws a wrench into your plan a little bit. I'm not trying to paint the Rays as sympathetic figures here. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong in that situation. You understand what I'm saying. That is a big deal. That's Mm -hmm. a huge freaking deal. When you commit to a person, you commit to a player, and they respond with being enough of a creepo that they'll probably not play baseball again for you. That's a huge deal. And then with the stadium announcement, which happened a couple weeks ago, raises a lot of questions about the future of this team in this place. And the postseason experience made me feel uneasy about whether they're going to pack the new stadium or not. I don't want to completely get into that right now because we have a lot of other baseball to talk about. But for me, the questions about the Rays after the season and what I'll remember is more about that than the specific players because the Rays machine rolls on. The baseball operations side of this is very healthy and they know what they're doing and they were able to withstand the loss of Franco enough with because and Shane McClanahan because they have enough other talented players in that system. That's going to keep going. Josh Lowe had a phenomenal season. Um, I'm excited to see what Camonero does next year. Mm-hmm. There's... Zach Littell was mm-hmm. outstanding. Like the Rays will raise, and we know this. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious to see what happens moving forward with all the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like this is a situation where I don't know how many times this was five straight postseason appearances. We know they did make it to a World Series, but it is also a good example of at some point people are just not going to believe in you as a, as a long-term or, or as a, as a deep October team, no matter what, like, it doesn't matter. It's like, okay, 99 wins. That is a lot to be proud of. I don't know what went wrong here. The two game sample is, is tough to get too uh, overworked about, but when it was the exact same performance as last season, there is at least some level of concern there. But I agree. Like I'm still like all these Yankees fans are making fun of the Rays for playing only two more games of the Yankees. But like, if I'm picking who's making the postseason next year, I know there's a long offseason ahead. I'm still picking Tampa over the New York at this stage, like in terms of who I'm trusting and in terms of the roster that I'm looking at that, that are going to get the most out of it. They still have that benefit of the doubt. So in that sense, credit to them. But this was this was by far the stink performance even more than their AL East counterpart the Toronto Blue Jays who also got swept this week in Minnesota them and uh, Tampa Bay extend their postseason losing streaks to seven those that is the current active record both of them on L7s in October so let's talk about the Twins and Blue Jays Jake this was a game that gave us all kinds of discourse I don't know how much you got uh, to watch this before uh, your Phillies and Marlins duties. But this was a game that had a decision. A decision that was not made on a whim by John Schneider. He did not just have some sort of magical hunch that Jose Barrios, after pitch 47, was about to fall off a cliff. No, this was a decision likely made hours, if not days before this game began, that Jose Barrios was not going to face 
I guess Max Kepler a second time, a, a decision to try and get the Twins lefties out of the lineup. And in doing so, the innings sort of unraveled in the fourth when you say Kikuchi comes in, Kepler gets a single, Solano gets a walk, Correa drives in a run. But the fact that that one run was enough to beat the Toronto Blue Jays in this game is by far the bigger issue at hand, in my opinion. We can talk about the Brios decision for sure because it was an interesting one worthy of discourse and discord, but the Blue Jays' offense did not show up. They had opportunities in this game again, and they did not come through whatsoever, and now the Blue Jays are sitting at home with their AL East buddies. If I had pitched... If I had come in for Barrios instead of Kikuchi, they still would have lost the baseball game. He's like, it doesn't, <laughs> it could have been, pe- it didn't matter. They didn't score, right? Mm-hmm. I think when you lose two to zero, talking about bullpen discourse is kind of just like missing the the point a little bit. It is an interesting strategic move, one that I disagree with. I understand it. But when you, like not giving Kikuchi a clean inning there, Mm. You are you are kind of playing with fire and putting him in an unfortunate situation um, mm. that he's maybe just unfamiliar with. And so for that reason, I just don't love the move. The play that I really love from this game was the pickoff. Oh, yeah. you know, I love a pickoff. <laughs> I, I just love I love the little stuff, Jordan. Did the you stuff that they make yeah. pitchers do to waste time during practice, whether it's like working on pickoffs or fielding ground balls whenever that matters oh boy is it gratifying did you watch the clip of of sunny gray explaining how the pickoff uh came together oh no i did not okay so sunny gray uh we won't play the whole clip because it's a little bit long but he basically explains that early in the game carlos correa like as early as the first inning and they'd worked on pickoff plays whatever correa basically comes up to him in the first and says it's so loud the guys on second cannot hear the third base coach so keep that in mind. Like he, they're not going to hear the third base coach, you know, yelling back. So just keep that in mind. So he had, keeps that in mind. And then to pull that out, Correa is the one that basically puts this play on. And remember the situation. It's second and third, two outs, full count with Bo Bichette at the plate, right? Just an incredible scoring opportunity. Sonny Gray's pitch count, which the Blue Jays had worked pretty well, 39 pitches through two innings. Like they weren't, maybe they hadn't scored, but like they were clearly putting together some quality at bats. This is the spot. Bo Bichette, two runners in scoring position. And Vlad is just wandering off second. And Correa manages to communicate to the dugout, who through pitch comp communicates, I assume, to Jeffers, to Sonny Gray, who whips around and delivers Probably his best pitch of the day, his throw <laughs> to Correa, who delivers, who who applies an incredibly quick tag on Vlad Guerrero. Poor Vladdy. Just an all-time toot bland shot of him leaning on second base, waving and claiming he is safe. Just a tough look all around, but an incredible play and execution um, and just general savvy from Carlos Correa. The line of things that has to happen for that play to work is really remarkable. So before a postseason series, okay, you have the scouts for a playoff team who usually spend their days scouting minor league players are sent to go watch various MLB teams that their own team is likely to play in the playoffs. It's called advanced scouting, right? And so these scouts will go advance 
like twins there are twin scouts went out and advanced the blue jays but they I, they also advanced like every team right that mm-hmm. they might play just in case mm-hmm. but they advanced the blue jays and i bet you there is some twin scout somewhere who wrote down guerrero not doesn't always pay attention when he's a trail runner mm-hmm. right that gets communicated somehow in through to the twins dugout apparatus who then maybe gets it to Correa who right like all these little things have to happen for Sonny Gray to whip around deliver a strike and steal it out and I just that is the type of baseball stuff that just fills me up with so much joy but and that's the thing all of that prep can go right and Sonny Gray can sail it into center field right like at the end of the day the baseball players still have to execute and you can apply that to so many things, so many decisions. At the end of the day, you say Kikuchi has to throw strikes. At the end of the day, like all these different things, right? That is still part of it. That that is why, truly, when people when the 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 people want to get on Twitter and say baseball's not played on computers, like that's true. But guess what? There's a lot of things that can help you. You still have to execute. And so, in this case, that is, that is absolutely what happened. I will say on the Blue Jays side, regardless of the decision and and the specific math that went into the decision, all these things, whatever. I feel horrible for Jose Brios, not because he was definitely going to pitch a perfect game, right? He was throwing extremely well. He was throwing harder as he had all season. He was clearly amped up. He was, he was executing. He looked great. And the, but those plans don't account for that. It doesn't matter. Right. And so that you can argue that that's the problem. That's fine. But just watching him watch the team that drafted him celebrate, like this is a guy that pitched in the postseason for the twins before and came up short and understood what that meant. It was just, it was just devastating. Again, like, He's that's not them pulling him is not the reason they lost. And even all the Blue Jays players said that after the game, all the Blue Jays players asked about it. were like, yeah, I hated that, but that's not the reason we lost. So it's worthy of criticism, worthy of discussion. Ultimately, the Blue Jays offense, which had been showing up on the road a lot, um, does not. You know, Brandon Belt goes 0 for 8 with five strikeouts. He was like their best hitter in the last two months and he was batting second. So um, obviously, Vlad relatively quiet so it was it was tough it was uh this blue jays team is 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 clearly also kind of stuck at this at this level and also a weirdly familiar feeling after losing to seattle last year who also hadn't won in a billion years now you drop this series um to minnesota and and minnesota i will say also you know now has the same same energy of, of seattle of like wow we've really accomplished something and okay now i gotta go play houston so we'll get to all that on friday's show um but for now minnesota i so happy for them so happy for that crowd it was it was so cool to see let's take a quick break and when we return we will hop into the national league marlins and phillies brewers and d-backs Hey everyone, producer Chris here with a quick housekeeping note about our merch. Look, in Australia, we love clothes and almost always wear them. If you're like us and also enjoy dabbling in clothes wearing, then why not consider some official Baseball Barbercast merchandise? Whether it's a jumper you're after, which you would call a sweatshirt, a cap, which we would call an old hair hugger, or a shirt, which we would call a belly wrap, we have it all for you. But that's not all. Do you also like to drink water or caffeinated beverages? Well, that's great because we have mugs and bottles to help you quench your thirst too. To buy any of this merch, go to podswag.com slash baseball. The link is in the description of the podcast. And don't leave yourself clothesless this And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schusterman. Hey, buddy, guess what? There are snakes in the grass. Woo-hoo-hoo! Snakes in the grass uh, on their way to Dodger Stadium. The Diamondbacks sweeping the Brew Crew. 
This was not a quiet crowd as it maybe was at the Trop. Uh, at at I know we can keep calling Miller Park. That's fine. I don't like uh, American Family Field. I don't like that name either. But AmFam, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not totally against AmFam. I, I, I kind of like agree. AmFam. I agree. Um, I agree. Anyway, the snakes in Game Two. Zach Gallant against Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta, of course, we expect to be game three, but Brandon Woodruff is hurt. And here comes Freddie Peralta, and Freddie Peralta looks awesome. Zach Gallant gives up two runs in the first inning. Oh, my goodness. We're heading towards a very similar game as game one. But eventually, the D-backs start making noise. I believe Peralta had a no-hitter through four. Uh, but ultimately, in the fifth inning, they break through with an Alec Thomas home run. That kind of shot. Alec Thomas has been a terrible hitter for the last uh, month or so and is is clearly an excellent center fielder, and that is why he is has been in the lineup every day, and they still, of course, believe in him. He hits a home run to make it 2-1, to one. and then in the sixth, here comes the D-backs offense. Corbin Carroll doubles in Geraldo Perdomo. Marte singles. Uh, and scores a couple more runs to take the lead. And then Abner Uribe, who is a, a treat to watch uh, from a pure arm talent standpoint, but also can get a little bit wacky. Uh, he gives up a couple runs, wild pitch in there. And after that, I mean, talk about you know the air coming out of the building. You could just kind of feel that Arizona just said, hey, listen, we're pretty good. We can score, and this Brewers bullpen does not scare us. And our bullpen is the greatest bullpen of all time, as we have learned in these last 48 hours. And the D-backs vaunted pen comes and slams the door. Thompson, Ginkle, Saul Frank, and Seawald again. And the D-backs are moving on. Niger Morgan throughout the first pitch of this game. Niger Morgan, Brewers legend who hit a single up the middle in the 2011 NLDS against the Diamondbacks walk off to win and go to the next round. And that little dribbler up the middle looked a lot like the Cattell Marte single up the middle. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) That gave the Diamondbacks the lead they would never relinquish against the Brewers. It was hit a little bit harder than Morgan's, and I'm not trying to downplay anything Niger Morgan ever did. What a legend. What an icon. Shouts out T-Plush. But there was just some real symmetry there. Diamondbacks, Brewers, Diamondbacks, Brewers, single up the middle to send Arizona to the next round. The Snakes are a good ball club, man. They're they're getting they're getting hot at the right time. They're good. And it I would say uh not that they not that maybe anybody would have beat Philly in this round, but I would have been much more interested to see that matchup than the one we ended up seeing uh with Miami. But hey, credit to Arizona. They took advantage of clearly a a a, a weaker if not just similarly strength team, right? Like I think that they were especially once Woodruff was down Gallon is also the exact pitcher I want on the mound after he gives up two runs. Like he doesn't this care. dude yeah. is so clinical and can make adjustments so well. And even though, and and by the way, he had a good uh, quote after the game where he was like, "Yeah, my velo was up probably too much." Like he was also very amped up to start the game. Command was a little shaky. Still gets through six. Really impressive performance. And then, hey man. Here comes the, the D-Max bullpen. Kevin Ginkle was clearly a little bit tired from his two-outing uh, performance in game one. He didn't look as good. But Saul Frank, what a what a showing. That was really cool. And then and then Seawald slams the door. Obviously, all the Mariners fans are, are rooting for Paul Seawald. That was a really cool moment uh, to see him kind of have that uh, against, uh, you know, to, to advance to the next round. So really impressive showing from Arizona. Corbin Carroll again in the middle of it. 
Um, and they they found a way to win. I mean, they only had six hits in this game, and it was uh, more than enough. And winning in two, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Winning in two is big for them because it means Merrill Kelly can start game one of the next round against the Dodgers. Yes. However, may I remind you that Merrill Kelly in his career is literally the worst pitcher against the Dodgers that any pitcher has ever been. <laughs> this is going to be a storyline you will see in the next 48 hours. Merrill Kelly is, I think, oh, has never won in 16 starts against the Dodgers. It is If you like take out his Dodgers starts, he would have been like a top five pitcher in baseball over the last five years, whatever. I still agree with you. Still better that than, although, hey, maybe a D-backs bullpen game is the best option. But the point is, I in theory, I agree with you. Although I promise you, as soon as he takes them out, everyone will be like, well, this is good, but actually he's 0 for 30 against the Dodgers. So we'll see how that works out. I'm sure it is also a, a cool, a great storyline. So I, I do think that uh, that is uh, very exciting. So D-backs move on. Let's uh, put a bow on the on the Brew Crew season. So just quickly, I, I love that our NL DS matchups are just like, fuck the NL Central. And it's just, <laughs> who's the best team in the East? Mm-hmm. Who's the best team in the West? You're going to, it feels very, it's like a regional almost yeah, right. in college baseball. And <laughs> right. I like how it feels it is that quite, way. It is quite literally a division series. Yes. It is, this uh, is, yeah, there we go. The Brewers are the Rays with fans. Hmm. They, it is such an impressive operation, what they've built there. The sustainability of it is the envy of all these other clubs in baseball who are rebuilding, whatever, right? We know this. The lineup is bad. And the lineup has been bad for a while. It has had flashes. There have been moments and players that have contributed a lot. Like getting Contreras is a huge deal for them. They should extend him. He's a legitimately great baseball player in their lineup. Yelich took a big step forward this year, bounced back really well, looked pretty good in the playoffs, I have to Mm -hmm. say. Like he he hit some balls hard. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, their inability to build a even a, an above-average lineup is really disappointing because they're so good at the other stuff. They're very good at defense. They're very good at pitching. They're very good at getting the most out of their team to win baseball games. And my worry now is that Craig Council, whose contract is up, will not be the manager next year. I don't think just this is the buzz I'm hearing around, you know, around the game is I don't think he's going to the Mets I think he's just going to take some time off. Both of his kids are in college playing college baseball. And I think he just needs, he just wants a rest. So I would be surprised if he's managing next year. And he has been so vital to what the Brewers have built and what the Brewers have been. I'm very interested to see how they keep this rolling without him. Two things on the Brewers uh, before we move on. One is when you compare them to the Rays, it's interesting because while the Rays delivered a similarly, if not even worse, stinky offensive performance for you know two consecutive Octobers, almost setting the record for most consecutive scoreless innings in October, as we saw, what the Rays have done, especially this year, is put together a regular season offense where you're like, holy shit. And if that it doesn't show up in October... It's weird. It's shrugged. Like, that sucks, whatever. But Milwaukee, every year we come in October and we say, how are they going to score? Because I'm looking at these OPS pluses and I'm saying, what is this? Like, what is this lineup? Which brings me to point number two. Jackson Churio, one of the top prospects in baseball, no pressure kid. He could, he could be a transcendent offensive player for this organization. 
Yeah. Again, long way to go there, but like that's the kind of guy that could just change in the way that Acuna did for Atlanta coming out of their rebuild too. Like that long way to go. They need more than just one, but like that's the kind of player that they've now they've had prospects of Freilich and like I like Freilich and they've had some guys, Terang, like useful players. You need a dude and that has not come for them and the Rays have kept churning those out too, right? We've seen more of those. Churio could be that for Milwaukee, but we will see. Let's talk about the Phillies, Jordan. Let's talk about the Phillies. Um, I mean, there's really only one moment in the game we probably need to talk about, unless you think there's more than that. Uh, there's two. So just okay. quickly, Phillies seven, Marlins one. Marlins, thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. Uh, we're going to go in, in another direction. Yeah. Uh, for the Should have lost one the, more game and went to Should have lost one more game. Could have yeah. played Milwaukee, but you didn't. And so you had to step into the cauldron of noise. Seeing Marlins reporters so shook uh, and not shook, but just they they were like, this is very loud. Like the, <laughs> like Marlins beat writers, right? And and all the Philly people are like, yes, wait till the World Series. Like it's, yeah. it's much louder. Um, so yes, thank you to the Marlins for coming out. The two moments in this game, uh, we'll start with the Bryson Stock Grand Slam. Bases juiced, first pitch, Andrew Nardi. Not a bad pitch, just a heater inside, but it was clear that Stott was kind of sitting on it, ripped it, crushed it, like obliterated it about as far as I've ever seen him hit a baseball. Cool to see him show off that raw juice. That took the score from three to zero to seven to zero. The one gripe about the Phillies up to that point, like they had dominated the Marlins thoroughly, but they hadn't dealt a knockout hammer blow that just sent the whole stadium into total mayhem, chaos, just losing all control. That hadn't happened yet. It was more like dinks and dunks. Even like the JT Realmuto home run was a solo shot. This was that, right? This was like TKO. You're not getting up off the mat. Total, you know, frenzy. Yeah, hysteria. and it was it was building towards that in the previous, you know, 15 innings or so. Um, and the real Muto homer was was also smashed. I believe it was the second hardest hit ball of the season. Uh, but yeah, it was, again, like, ultimately, too, this is another situation where for all the improvements that they made, and they're facing two very good pitchers in Wheeler and Nola, but this, this, this Marlins offense, Josh Bell was the only one, again, who looked like he had any idea what he was doing. You know, everyone else was just completely overmatched and... Not a shock when you consider, you know, where these guys are coming from. Although it is, like, I guess it was a little weird for Solaire, who we saw, you know, have some big postseason moments. But still, um, that was clearly an issue. But ultimately, like, no no shock here. It went exactly as we could have expected when we previewed it. So not a, t- a whole much more to add. Obviously, the party went on lengthy. I don't know how far you were involved if, if, if this time. I, I know you got to prepare for maybe a few more of these, uh, but it seemed like a, a good time as always. I don't, I don't really have much more to add other than like, yeah, I will share all these videos. They are all very funny and cool. Uh, I have one more game thing, and then I'll talk about the sure. celebration. The inside move. Hmm. The Aaron Nola pickoff to second. So for folks who are listening who maybe didn't grow up playing baseball, your understanding, I would imagine, I don't want to assume, of an inside move, an inside pickoff move where – a pitcher, a right-handed pitcher, lifts their left leg, and instead of going home to pitch, they swivel that left leg over their right leg and pick a second. Your assumption of this is probably that it is either a time waster, a an excuse to like step off the mound and 
and kind of buy time, or it is just like a irrelevant, pointless move to second. Because most of the time in baseball, the big leagues, like that's what it is, right? Jordan, like an inside move never works. It, it Guys don't sell it correctly. The point of an inside move is that everything looks the same from throughout your leg lift. So from the bottom of it to the top, it looks like you're about to pitch. And so runners are taught to get a secondary lead as you go home, whether or not they're stealing. So what you're hoping is that as your leg comes down, they're assuming that you are going home. They take two more steps. They're leaning the wrong way. You swivel around and throw it a second. Never really works that way. As far as I could tell, I, I did some research on this. It was like the only inside move I could find this season that worked, which is kind of nuts. I looked through all the pickoffs and I couldn't really find another one. I might be wrong about that. But that move in that spot was a big, big, big deal because you had runners on, you had a runner on second in the second inning, I think with one out. It was the closest the Marlins got to win, leading a baseball game the entire series. It was a tie game at that point. And Nola didn't look shaky. He was on the ropes a little bit. It was Jacob Stallings at the plate. But then, you know, you get, let's say you get Jacob Stallings out. You got to run around second. Luisa rises up. Like that's probably a single, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for Nola to nail this inside move is the type of thing baseball nerd fired me up. I mean, that's totally. just good, good stuff. Yeah. Um, celebration wise, there was like a, I could say a million things, but there was like a puddle about an inch thick of just unidentifiable alcoholic liquid on the bottom of the clubhouse floor. Just a puddle of booze. Just <laughs> disgusting. Like a swamp of light beer. It was very, very... It was different than what I'd seen. It was just more liquid than before. And you couldn't... Like my shoes were ruined. Like you couldn't walk through it. You are like, like a kid stomping in a puddle. Garrett Stubbs like splashing in it. You know what I mean? Like a mm -hmm. like a kid in rain boots. But the Phillies move on. They're better than the Marlins. And uh, the thing that I'm most interested about, and I wrote about this at Fox, is what about this feels different to them? And what about this feels the same? Because to me, it's the same thing. It's a continuation of the energy that they started last year. And even though Bryce Harper has said in press conferences, like, this is a new story, looks a lot like the old story. And that's okay. It feels like when you uh, see a friend you haven't seen in a while and you sit down and nothing's changed. That is how this Phillies postseason energy feels. They have continued that positive momentum from last year into this October. Yeah, it seems almost all the same, except now it is also an air of confidence. Not that they didn't have it last year, but a level of expectation and knowing how good they are. Not just like, uh, we're invincible, you can't stop this crazy Cinderella story. It's like, a, we're one of the best teams in baseball and you can't stop us. Which is a slightly different flavor, even though I agree with you. It basically looks exactly the same, which is not a bad thing. And I'm sure they extra celebrated because, hey, what do we have now? Two off days, no baseball on Thursday, no baseball on Friday. But good news, we will be back tomorrow to preview the division series round we will cut this short episode off here but thank you jake mintz for waking up and podcasting with me thank you to chris tyler for producing as always you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com if we did not talk enough about your teams that lost 
Maybe they should have won. Just kidding. That's mean. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back on Friday to more thoroughly discuss the teams that advanced and the teams that are waiting for them in the division series round. Jake Mintz, close us out, sir. I genuinely feel bad this morning for Jose Barrios and diehard Rays fans. You folks don't deserve this. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Marlins, I'm proud of you. You did make us proud, but... The Phillies are better. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Serious XM Podcasts.